And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So when I started college, I was a psychology student. And of course, when you're a first-year student, they teach you all about the experiments that really defined human nature, or at least uncovered a fundamental truth unknown before that experiment. On the top of that list, the Milgram Obedience Experiments, where an authoritarian experimenter is able to convince the subject to keep giving shocks to a person behind a mirror past the point of a heart attack, to the point of death, or at least that's what the conclusion of the experiment is meant to teach us. Is this true? Is it not? Well, today we're going to find out the answer to that question, because Gina Perry, who you might remember from our episode on the Robber's Cave experiment, is back on the show to talk about her deep dive into the Milgram experiment. And in fact, she came in as an admirer. She kind of turned around on Milgram. So what made her make that change? We're going to follow that journey today. Uh, I'm very excited to get into this because I, you know, I too was enamored by this experiment and found it to be incredibly interesting. So let's get right to it. Gina, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, this is very exciting, you know, not only for me, Gina, but for you as well, because today, August 27th, August 28th for you, marks your introduction into the Fascinating Nouns Two-Timers Club. This is your second time on the show, so I want to get your thoughts, your feelings, uh, your emotions, if you're able to keep them in check. How do you feel about that? Oh, very excited. Very excited to be back a second time. I feel like it's a great honor, and I'm doing my country proud. You, you certainly are. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and this is, you know, speaking of proud, you've got to be proud of this book, Behind the Shock Machine. Now, I know this is, you've, you put this out a while ago. I think it was 2012, I believe. Uh, but this is an evergreen book because it's about uh, the Milgram experiments who, for some reason, and I can't tell you why, Gina, in my notes for about 75% of your book, when I was taking notes, I kept writing Milligram, M-I-L-I-G-R-A-M. Uh, <laughs> and I realized I was misspelling it. Uh, but these are the famous obedience experiments that you know are a piece of social psychology history. And you did an incredible amount of research on this. You know, you went to Yale. Uh, you took some trips to the States. You, you interviewed former subjects, associates of Milgram, and even his wife, Alexandra. Uh, what was that like? And how did you put all of that stuff together? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I mean, I really do look back on it and I think about it as an incredible experience. But I think I... When I began the project, I actually believed that I was really going to attempt to find some people who took part in the experiment and just mm -hmm. talk to them about how it affected them over the years. Mm -hmm. So I had a very limited or, or very, um, what would you say? I, I already had a fairly clear idea in mind about what the project was going to be. Yeah. But once, and you would know yourself with this, with research, that once mm -hmm. you start, you never know what you're going to find out. 
Right. And what I found was that the idea I had about the experiment and the idea that most people have about the experiment was very different when you looked at the archival material. Mm -hmm. So I started to go back to recheck everything I thought I knew. Mm -hmm. And that meant doing, as you say, an enormous amount of research. I probably took me about four and a half years of traveling to the States, then coming home and saving mm -hmm. up again and working and going back again and <laughs> right. tracking people down um, because it's an, it was an independent research project at that point. Mm -hmm. I had no publisher. Um, I was really doing it because I felt totally bitten by the bug and I wanted to mm. get to the bottom of this story. And uh, so that's why it took me so long. But as you say, it's... Uh, it's a book that no one else has written and I guess no one else would be crazy enough to invest that time, money, effort and energy into it perhaps but uh, <laughs> I, I really felt in the end like I was justified in doing that, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you said that you went into this thinking you kind of had an idea of what you wanted to do and as a matter of fact, you know, I think you start feeling one way about Milgram and the experiments and you end the book in a totally different place, you know, emotionally. But it's funny because that's kind of what Milgram did is he had this idea for the experiment uh, and then the, you know, everything he got was kind of different than what he, you know, kind of went into it initially. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, you know, one of the most famous social experiments. But before we get into that, I want to mention two things here on the top. One thing you taught me in this book, and I know I'm going to mispronounce this word, but you taught me what a carillonneur is. Um, which is a person who plays the instrument of bells, like ba da 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 da. I never heard of that word before. That's that's so. Thank you for that, Gina. That's that's a good word. Uh, I, I think I probably had to look it up to know that there was a job called that. But anyway, thank you for the compliment. I'll take it. Sure, of course. I love that. Uh, and also, there's this this TV show that I'm kind of obsessed with called The Rehearsal, which I don't know if you've if you've seen this. It's on HBO. I don't know if it's made its way out to Australia yet. But it's a social experiment where um, the 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 lead of the show is helping other people get through social. Um, interactions with people by rehearsing them over and over and over and finding all the permutations of the way a conversation can go. And that's just, you know, one type of avant-garde social experiment, which, you know, at the time when, when Milgram was doing this, this was an avant-garde social um, experiment, very, very on the cutting edge. And before we go into that, I want to mention that Milgram was also the pioneer of the small world theory, you know, in a six degrees uh, of separation. And so he did a lot of, you know, things besides obedience, but this is kind of what he's known for. Um, and then as you were doing this, you know, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this, I, I feel like I'm not going to get to ask you this question. But, you know, when you went to Yale, you yourself participated in a, in a social experiment. Uh, why did you do that? What, and, and what was it like? And how did, how did it differ from the way Milgram conducted his experiments? Um, well, there's a few questions in there, but the first... There are. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I'll answer that one first, and then I'll come back to the one about my changing feelings about Milgram, because... Okay. Um, so remind me if I don't answer that one, but... Yale, I, I saw an ad for an experiment at Yale and I just thought, I wonder if things have changed. I wonder what it would feel like to be a subject. I'd interviewed a lot of people by then who'd taken part in Milgram's experiment and I had a feeling from them of what it, what it was like and mm -hmm. I thought, I'll try it myself. And 
you know, Yale, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's kind of intimidating place. It's sort of Ivy League, as you know, and there's mm-hmm. these old buildings and there's a sense of, um, you know, that you're really somewhere special. And I found that doing that experiment was very useful because I was treated like I was a nobody, but not in any insulting way, but... Um, an average Joe, let's say. Exp- just an average person. Just like an average person. Not like a, you know, like, not like a nobody, but like an average no, person. There was You're no, right no attempt to interact with me right. uh, as an individual. No one commented on my, the fact that I was Australian. Sure. Um, you know, there was no genuine human interaction. And right. it was very interesting for me because I thought, I felt like... I was treated as an anonymous object rather hmm. than a living, real person with a history of my own. So that was very useful for me because it helped me understand that, A, things haven't changed that much. When we, <laughs> right. when we treat human beings as subjects in experiments, hmm. we divest them of their individuality. Um, And the second question, which is a really great one, is that, yes, uh, like I think a lot of people who studied psychology at university, I I was in awe of Stanley Milgram. I thought his experiment was innovative. It was so creative. I felt like it uncovered things that we wouldn't normally know about human nature. So I I had a lot of um, positive feelings about him as an experimenter. And then once I went to the archives and started looking at the behind the scenes material about the experiment and finding that there was subterfuge and suppression of results, mm-hmm. I, I did really begin to revise my opinion of him as a social psychologist. Well, I mean, you know, they always say you never meet your heroes, Gina. Um, maybe you can, we can kind of expand that a little bit. You never want to research your heroes, right? I mean, you're always going to find the dirty laundry, you know? I mean, there's no one's perfect. Think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think it's true of, I mean, maybe there's some people, I mean, look, I, I'm jaded. I live in Los Angeles, uh, you know, work in, work in the entertainment industry. And I've met a lot of people who are idolized. And for the most part, they're pretty normal people. Um, some are bad people. Uh, some are extremely good people, right? But there's, there, you don't know. But typically, when you put anyone on a pedestal, they're going to disappoint you at some point because no one can live up to the ideals that you set for them. They're just normal people. And I think Milgram probably was, was pretty normal, I think. I don't know. You did the research, but I feel like he was probably pretty normal. Well, I think we've got to distinguish between the the person and the scientist. And mm-hmm. my disillusionment was with his science. And I was very surprised to find that he had, for example, shaped a particular narrative that he'd excluded results that didn't support his theory. Um, you know, maybe, as you say, we're more, we're more alert to that now, but I certainly didn't expect it on the scale that it was. And I also... It wasn't just Milgram. It was it was the generations of scholars who came after Milgram who never really turned a critical eye on that research, mm-hmm. who parroted the results, made connections for uh, the power of the experiments, whereas some of the things were really hidden in plain sight, I felt, once I'd gone through the material very closely. 
Right. Okay. Um, I felt that there were serious questions that should have been asked way before. And I'm not saying here that I was the only person. There certainly have been scholars in the decades between who have raised questions. But if you don't have access to the archival material, then the uh, scientist has the last word. Well, you know what you know what was kind of interesting about about what you're saying and about reading the book uh, is that hopefully I don't get too far ahead of ourselves, but I think this is a good point to talk about this is that you know you said you went and looked at the behind the scenes, right? And and that's an important thing to say because the way you kind of paint the picture of Milgram in the book is that he loved the arts, he loved theater. This experiment was almost less an experiment and more of you know um, avant garde theater, you know, like. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I had it written down later on, but you know, it's kind of like what Andy Kaufman did, a performance artist, right? Like this is, he wanted to, to prove something. He wanted to do something cool. He wanted to see if he could get a certain reaction out of people. And, you know, this was heavily influenced by, uh, the, the aid, uh, Adolf Eichmann. I think I'm saying that properly. Uh, uh, trials that were going on that were, you know, left over from world war two and the Nazis. And I think he was very fascinated with this idea that people, could be average people can do horrible things without being horrible people. And in some ways, I think that's why this intrigues us. You know, I, I was like you. I mean, I studied psychology early on in college. This, you know, this was one of my um, one of the experiments that's always taught along with the Zimbardo experiment, which is another another wacky one. And, and I think that th this intrigues us at some level and in some ways terrifies us because what if there is this evil that is inside of all of us, or at the very least, what if there is an apathy that can be um, weaponized as evil by those who are more malicious uh, and manipulative around us? And I think that's why it's intriguing. And I think maybe that's what he was going for in his own roundabout way. Less science, more razzle-dazzle. Well, um, you mentioned a reality TV program that you called a social experiment, mm -hmm. and uh, Milgram borrowed himself from very early reality TV um, and he used the techniques uh, of that in his experiment. And I think reality TV has borrowed enormously from uh, experiments like Milgram's today. So there's always been a very blurry boundary between his kind of experiment and a popular entertainment. I take your yeah. point, yes, it seems to tackle big issues, um, but scientifically, uh, it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And that is a very troubling part about the experiment, is that the what we're taught to believe about the Milgram experiment actually isn't what the results demonstrate. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in a sense, yes, Milgram found what he wanted to, but he found it by shaping, editing and crafting a narrative the same way you could say a reality TV show mm -hmm. does the same. They leave a lot of things out on the cutting room floor to present a particular story. And I, I don't really, um, I really see the parallels there more strongly. Yeah. He was a very artistic person mm -hmm. um, into experimenting with uh, particular drugs at at particular times <laughs> right, yeah. during his career, and which I do think um, at times affected his judgment. Yeah. Um, yeah, so he was an interesting man. I, I certainly don't dispute that, but I think the science side of it is very troubling. 
Well, I think what's troubling is you suggesting that The Bachelor is not a documentary, that somehow producers are crafting this love story on screen. How dare you uh, suggest such a thing, Gina? That's terrible. Um, but I will tell you, you know, what kind of sums up what you're talking about. And then we got to I'm, I'm sorry I'm taking so long to get into the experiment, but there's so much fun stuff I want to talk about up front. Uh, so the one thing I want to get into before we get too far, we got what kind of encapsulates what you're saying and what I'm saying about Milgram is this very funny opening scene of Ghostbusters. Do you remember this scene? Did, have you seen the movie? Oh, yeah, but not for a long time. So it's where Peter Venkman is having he's he's doing an experiment. This is this is I didn't realize how this is such a ripoff of Milgram. So he's having an experiment where he's got two people tied up to a shock machine and he's holding up cards. There's a beautiful woman and kind of a nerdy guy. And so he's holding up these cards with images on the back and he's asking them one by one, you know, what's behind the card. But of course, he never shocks the woman and he only shocks this guy. To the point where he gets so upset <laughs> that he rips off the shock machine and says, you can keep the five bucks. I've had it. Which is five bucks is what he was, Milgram was paying people to come to his experiment. And it's just funny because in, it's the same way. You know, Venkman is always about the razzle-dazzle. He was about kind of getting the results he wanted instead of what was scientifically there. But in some ways, that cool scene, and I'll put it up on the website, really encapsulates, you know, uh, the whole the whole Milgram, at least the, at least the way you portray the, the Milgram uh, um, experiments. Uh, so well, well, there's also a there's also a fantastic episode of The Simpsons where they go to therapy. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah, therapist yeah. hooks them all up to a shock machine yeah. and asks them to give uh you know, give shocks to other family members and they, they short the power grid at Springfield <laughs> right. because they're so busy blasting one another with electric shocks. So <laughs> it, it it's look it's been picked up and amplified in popular culture in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And of course that reinforces what we think of as the truth yep. of the experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the more it's repeated, the more people believe it to be truth. You know, I just yes. talked about that yes. last week with my with my last episode and how memory can be adjusted. Even repeating stuff makes you think it's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now let me I'm going to quickly go through what would be a typical experiment that people listening would know. And then we're going to go into some of the details of it. But basically, um, the way it's set up is a, is two people come into a room and they're told they're going to do a social experiment. They draw straws to see who's going to be the learner, who's going to be learning the thing. And the, and the object is that how shocks are going to reinforce um, the effect on someone learning a list of words. Uh, but that person, a memory. a memory, I'm sorry, a memory. And so that person is actually a stooge, like they're, they're part of the experiment. Um, and then the, the subject, the actual person they're experimenting becomes the teacher. And so for all intents and purposes, that's the teacher and the learner. And before they go in, they give, you know, they, 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 um, they kind of set the seed that the person learning all the stuff and the person getting the shocks has a heart condition. And so they go through asking questions and they're told to raise to every time they get an answer wrong, they get a shock. But the shocks increase incrementally by like 15 volts. And they give a shock to the person who's teaching early to show them that, oh, this is real. Uh, and then they're basically to see how high they can go. And the machine goes up to, I think, 450, which is labeled XXX, uh, not the, the dangerous XXX, not the, uh, the, the, the fun one. But, but this, is, this is serious business to them because they believe that this machine is real. And in fact, turns out it's not a shock machine. The person's not getting shocks. Uh, they, you know, they have screams of protest from behind a wall. Uh, and then the goal is to see how high do they go? Do they go, you know, do they stop at any point? Do they go all the way? And that's roughly, that's basically what's, at least in the movie, obedience. That's roughly what people think is the variation that Milgram 
was using. Is that pretty close to accurate? That's that's pretty close to accurate. Yep. Okay. Okay. Uh, so now, w- what you kind of found out, which is interesting, is that there were twenty four variations of this experiment, 23 that are known, uh, you found a 24th hidden one, which must have been which been pretty exciting. And in most, uh, if I'm understanding this correctly, two-thirds, about 65% or so, it disobeyed the authority figure when you look at just the raw data. And the data that they put forth is that most people went all the way up to 450 and were shocking people, you know, basically to death because they're, you know, heart condition. People thought they were having a heart attack. They were shocking people after they stopped, you know, they'd been um, protesting and then stopped protesting and people thought they were dead. Uh, but that's kind of what he was portraying. So what did you find uh, in the data? Because it seems to be in complete opposition to this. Well, The main thing to remember is that Milgram's experiment really hit the newspapers when he first published a first variation. Mm -hmm. So that experiment, which is the one you described, in which 65% of people went to maximum voltage on the shock machine, was one of 24 variations, but also... Um, so what happened was that when he published that journal article, it hit the newspapers big time, and mm-hmm. it was the that was the popular perception of his experiment. Now each of those twenty four variations had around forty subjects, so this was the most you know I think this is probably my first most shocking um, piece of understanding for myself was that the popular perception of the experiment is based on the behaviour of 26 men. That's crazy. Because there were 40 subjects in the experiment and 26 of them went to maximum voltage. And when I listened to the audio recordings of the experiment, which Milgram tape recorded all of his experiments, you can hear people um, not just protesting about having to give shocks, but also professing their scepticism about what was happening. Right. So again, that was excluded from Milgram's first journal article, was the fact that all we have is the voltage and their behaviour. We're given this information that 65% of people went to the maximum voltage on the shock machine. But what he didn't explain was why they did that. Mm -hmm. We always assume they do it because they're inherently evil and they obey orders. But what if you know that that machine isn't real? What if you believe that Yale would never let you torture someone right. in one of their beautiful old ivy-covered buildings? So none of that is explored. None of that is mentioned in the journal article. And it wasn't until 10 years later that Milgram published the full 23, he included 23 variations mm-hmm. in his book. And that this is what I was talking about earlier. If you read Milgram's book closely, it raises so many questions. There are so many things in there that are red flags. And my point earlier was that really scholars have been incredibly uncritical of Milgram's research. And I think it's because they've accepted that initial version that was the depiction that came out in his first journal article in 1963 right. when he was a young untenured professor at Yale, very keen to make an impact and establish his reputation. Mm -hmm. Of course, it totally backfired on him, but that was his... 
that was his drive at the time, as it probably still is today for a lot of people in that situation. Yep. Well, I think that that's a good point because everyone wants to take a big swing, right? Everyone wants to be the person who came out with this landmark study that in some ways can either redefine how the brain works or how people think or to make some kind of leap in what we think is a paradigm of psychology, sociology, or anything. And that's really what he was striving to do here. But you bring up something interesting. Um, and since you mentioned it, we should, we should look at it here. But that, you know, a lot of the people who went to 450 volts, a lot of them actually sh- saw through the charade, right? Like they saw through what was going on. And, you know, even you talk about in the book, you met a guy named Joe who was in the experiment, uh, he was a communist, which is a little, that was a, a strange time to be a, be admit being a communist in the 1960s or 50s, 60s. Uh, but he, you know, he picked up, you know, he picked up all the clues. Um, uh, and, and so he was going into it thinking, this can't be right. As you mentioned, they're not going to let you torture people with electric shocks at Yale. What's going on here? And so because of that, if you're not bought in, if you don't buy into the scenario, then the results are kind of tainted because then you're just kind of playing along. You're like in a, you're like in an acting scene where you can kind of see what you're what's going on instead of believing you're in reality and that you're actually shocking someone. Those results are, are extraordinarily different. And he wasn't the only one you found. No, and it goes back to that point about the regarding subjects as somehow empty vessels who mm-hmm. will believe anything that you present. And Milgram was very insistent on how believable his scenario was. Mm-hmm. Because if if the scenario isn't believable, the whole thing is a house of cards. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes, Joe Demo was a really great example, really intelligent guy, working class guy, committed to communism, so very principled. Mm -hmm. He lectured at Yale, not lectured, but he gave talks at Yale to people about communism and unionising. And so he wasn't intimidated by the university itself. Mm -hmm. But one of the things he said that I thought was so interesting, he said, why, when I went to the experiment, he said, I'm told that this guy in the room next door has a heart condition. Mm -hmm. Why is the man in the lab coat staying in the room and studying me? Why isn't he going into the other room and keeping an eye on the supposed subject? Right, yeah. And also a subject who's got a heart attack. I mean, so the other thing was in the archives, there are a lot of, um, there are letters from subjects who wrote to Milgram afterwards who explained why they uh, responded the way they did. And they talked about the fact that they could see speakers in the corner of the room. <laughs> the, the cries from the man next door sounded phony. Right. Um, and even that sometimes people would give a lower level of shock um, just to test it out, but the cries would increase in terms of protest and pain. Mm-hmm. So they realised, does that make sense? Yeah, they yeah. realised that, that, that the it was pre-recorded rather than responding to their right. actual, um, the, the voltage that they gave. Now, I don't want to um, mislead your listeners by saying, look, everybody understood this, but mm-hmm. even people who were agonising and um, feeling terribly stressed in the experiment uh, that I spoke to who went to 450 volts and felt terrible about what they did also talked about how at the time, how ambiguous and conflicted they felt because the whole situation was so weird and unclear. Mm-hmm. Right. 
for example, why didn't the man in the white coat call it off? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, for some people, that seemed really odd. And so turning to the man in the white coat and saying, I don't want to continue, and the man in the white coat saying, keep on going, even though the man in the room next door had a heart condition, it was, it, yeah, it was discombobulating for a lot of people. So yeah. there was that element of that Milgram totally um, airbrushed out of official accounts of the experiment. He dismissed it as people saying afterwards that they'd seen through it. Whereas you can hear on the recordings of the experiment as they unfolded that people are raising these sorts of questions constantly. Right. Well, it's interesting to know, I mean, because it takes a certain type of per person to win in that stressful situation to kind of look at the clues and say, okay, this doesn't feel right. Why doesn't feel yep. right? And some people yep. just buy yep. in. I mean, it's that's a personality thing. Some people buy into a situation or they're led by emotions and some people are a little more logical and they say, hey, hold on a second. This person has a heart condition. They've stopped yelling. Uh, they're, they're might be dead. And this guy's looking at me. Come on. <laughs> like, come on. You know, like there's, I see, I relate to those people. I'm kind of a cynic. I don't trust anyone. Gina. Well, the other thing is that it was very fast. Yeah. That the script yeah. and the setup was really quick. Mm -hmm. And it was a bit like being on a runaway train. Yeah. You listen yeah. to those audio tapes. People don't have any opportunity. It, it's, it's, it's on them before they've really realized. Sure. And, I feel like in some ways it's like any situation that you might come across that's stressful, that's sudden, that's quick, uh, where you don't actually have a lot of time to reflect. You're mm -hmm. reacting and you're trying to work things out as you're going. And then, you know, when you have the luxury of time, you can think it through. But definitely it was tightly scripted uh, and people's – you know, there were there were people, for example, who said they didn't want to go on until the experimenter in the white coat went and checked on the guy in the lab coat, mm -hmm. right? And he would leave the room and come back and say, the guy's okay. Hmm. So what do you make of that? Right. You're shocking. You're giving a man shocks, supposedly, who's crying out in pain. You insist that the experimenter go and check on him. Mm -hmm. The experimenter comes back and says he's fine. Mm -hmm. well, what do you make of these weird bits of information? Right. And, of course, that's not included in uh, Milgram's account of the experiment either, mm -hmm. that, that the, the lengths to which people were, um, you know, for example, like that, that the fact that the experimenter would pretend to go and check on the learner and reassure the teacher mm -hmm. Uh, that's not included in official descriptions of the experiment. Um, obviously, he doesn't include uh, people's scepticism at the time in his description. <laughs> I imagine not. Or people's <laughs> efforts. A lot of people offered to swap places. So they, bar they would say to the guy in the lab coat, let me go in the room next door because this guy, and they're saying this behind their hand, this guy's pretty dumb. <laughs> I can do better yeah. on this memory test. He's yeah. getting a lot of answers wrong. Right. And they weren't, you know, it wasn't a complicated test. You had to recall four words. Right. So, you know, there. It, what, what's excluded from the story is the humanity of the subjects. Mm -hmm. As I, I said right at the start, that these were people who were thinking, empathic, actively trying to work out what was happening in this situation and trying to make efforts to alleviate or minimise distress. Uh, 
you know, I'm not saying all of them, don't get me wrong, but, you know, all of this is excluded from the official story and it really, really changes the results. But if you, if you want to stick to the statistics, as you say, when you look at those 23 published variations from Milgram's book, and it's in Milgram's book, if you look at them all and you look at the rate of obedience and disobedience, mm-hmm. over 60% of people in the whole experimental series refused to obey hmm. the experimenter and refused to go to the maximum voltage. We've been convinced that the opposite is true, and that's because of the fame of that first report. What I think is kind of interesting in listening to you explain this is I, I'm looking for it in my notes. I, you mentioned in, in, in your book, uh, there was the, it's called the candle experiment, where a guy goes and he tries to measure the, the, the height of a candle flame in various different uh, environmental conditions, the top of a mountain, in the dark, in the cold. And, um, you know, then someone asks him, well, how does the flame burn or something like that? And he doesn't have an answer for that because all he's been doing is measuring how high a candle flame is, which is in some ways irrelevant. Who cares how high the candle flame is? What's interesting is the combustion. How does it make light? There's so many other more, much more interesting questions to ask about a candle than how tall the flame is. And as you're talking here, Milgram seemed to be obsessed with making this about the, um, the obedience part of this. But in some ways, he missed so much other interesting information that he gathered, which is how do different people react in a stressful, life-threatening or, you know, situation? How, how do they, do they, you know, do they, do they obey authority? Do they not obey authority? How do they react? Even the people who saw through it, you know, what are they looking at? What are they observing? How, how much of your mind in a panic situation is actually connected to looking around and logically thinking your way through? How many people are overcome with emotion? How many people are, as you said, you know, run over by the, the railroad of, of information and events that are happening? To me, looking at all of that stuff is much more interesting. Now, I don't know how to interpret that because there's a lot going on. But to me, that's the value of that experiment that I think was overlooked. Well, a couple of things that are interesting there is that candle flame story, which is so terrific, Great. is actually something Milgram wrote in his diary. <laughs> okay. So right. he, it, he himself, you know, and this is what's so interesting to me, in his private notes to himself, he's full of self-doubt. Uh-huh. Right. And right. that candle story is about, I think, is a metaphor for the fact that he was obsessed with what voltage people went to on the machine, mm-hmm. which is like the height of the candle. But it doesn't explain why they did what they did. And, you know, Milgram's experiment excludes the idea of empathy. Mm-hmm. And yet the results show if 60% of people disobeyed the experimenter, then empathy was a huge factor in this experiment. Right. People felt for the victim, mm-hmm. and they intervened on his behalf. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the experiment, as you say, it's it's a missed opportunity. There's so much more information there that is of value to us. I mean, don't we want to know more about how you get people to be more empathic? Do we really need any more experiments about evil? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I make it quite clear that I think Experiments like Milgram's and Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment, 
they're more morality plays than they are serious science. Right, yeah. They're attempts by the experimenter to make a moral point and to connect themselves with what they feel is a big issue, mm -hmm. uh, something that's important in contemporary life. And, of course, of course, we should um, understand and continue to try and understand how the Holocaust happened. Mm -hmm. But by Milgram hitching his experiments so closely to Adolf Eichmann's defence, Eichmann's defence was more of an alibi than a defence, and uh, Milgram hitched his experiment very much to Hannah Arendt's interpretation mm -hmm. of Eichmann as a mindless bureaucrat who was simply obeying orders. And yet, you know, recent scholarship has found that Eichmann, um, sorry, found that um, Arendt's own interpretation of Eichmann's behaviour was uh, also at odds with historical reality. Mm -hmm. Eichmann's lawyers made deliberate decisions during the trial to have him dress in a in a anonymous looking business suit. Mm -hmm. But if he'd been tried wearing his Nazi uniform, <laughs> right. would people have accepted that argument about him being a mindless bureaucrat so easily? So, you know, there's a series of faulty connections there that Milgram made. Yeah. And we can break those connections because we now have information about the experiments that allows us to view them in a different light. And it's really time we did that. Well, I think, you know, you, again, it comes back to this razzle-dazzle, which I thought was an interesting part of of the story about how Milgram really set this up and wrote a script. And, you know, he even puts uh, some you know, like a balm to protect against burns uh, on the on the learner. I mean, he really goes out of his way to make a reality. But again, it's it's information is information, science is science. But you can you can wordsmith it, you can twist it, you can um, you know dress people up, you can put a lab coat on somebody, and people think that they're an authority figure. As you mentioned with the Eichmann trial, yeah, if you put it if you put him in a Nazi uniform, uh, of course people are gonna uh, they're gonna see him as a Nazi. But if you put him in a business suit, then you're seeing him as a normal person. It's just a suit. But that's how we perceive it. But you can change perception and change people's reaction to that almost too easily, as a matter of fact. And I have to say, I know, you know, Milgram, you know, you can say that you've done a lot more research on, on how Milgram, how this, what the actual information was. But I think at the time, you know, this is the 60s, you know, it's coming out of this trial. I think people really wanted to understand how the Holocaust could have happened in Germany with, you know, th there are good people in Germany, right? I mean, that's, it's not, it's not like the entire country is evil. So how did this happen? And I think there is something, there is something to what he was looking at, which is everyday people will obey authority figures if they're told that they are an expert. And if you don't know any better, there's still something there uh, I don't know that it explains Nazi behavior, but and I, and I don't think you can turn an average person into, um, you know, a torturer or a murderer. But there's something there, Gina, that I think he was trying to get at, desperately trying to get at, that is there. I just don't know that he approached it properly. True, but I think, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, but I also think, what's the purpose of science? If If the purpose of science is to shed light on a, you know, unimaginably horrific historical event. And I think the second part of that is to look at what you can do, what you can contribute to preventing it. And 
by misleading people with the conclusion mm -hmm. that we are all inside of us, uh, you know, really, we're all just concentration camp guards in disguise, right. which is basically Milgram's conclusion. Mm -hmm. Where does that lead us? I mean, it's a dead end, isn't it? Uh, it's it's almost like destiny. Is it like fate? He, he doesn't offer anything in that research to look at ways to create and amplify empathy. Mm -hmm. Now, as I said earlier, his his findings were that empathy was the dominant response rather than blind obedience. So wouldn't it be better if we had ways of understanding how to help people connect more with one another, how to create situations where people will resist on the basis of their feeling for one another? And it, it doesn't explore that in any way, shape or form. It's, it's a really... It is razzle-dazzle. It really shocks people. I hate to use that pun. That's three times. Three it's times you've shocking. used it. That's all right. We'll, we'll let it go. Yeah. It's... <laughs> uh, it's shocking. But it confirms, I think, something that a lot of us believe and, and that is true is that there are people in this world who are inherently evil. But uh, it certainly it, it just doesn't contribute anything in terms of making the world a better place. Well, I, I agree with you there, but I'm going to play devil's advocate with you here for a second, because why not? I think what's interesting about this, at least what intrigues me about this, and I think what intrigued a lot of people when they when they read this initially, is that, you know, I think that every person can, under the right circumstances, be driven to kill somebody else, whether it's out of survival, self-defense. You know, I think a lot of people, given, you know, let's say someone murders a close family member of you or someone you love— do you not have those rate? I think you'd. I think you would find fewer people who don't have that instinct than that do. It's a. It's a natural human instinct. We are primal. As much as civilization tries to suppress our primal instincts, it's difficult. And I think what would have been a, a much more interesting experiment was instead of creating an empathetic situation, and then twisting it and making it about obedience, create a situation where you you could see where what were the lines. How far would you have to push someone? For them to do these horrible acts, how much would you have to dehumanize someone or a group of people in order to get someone to agree with murdering them either at, you know, ad hoc or individually? Because I think that is more relevant because once you have that piece of information, then you can stop it. You can say, OK, well, once we see steps A, B and C going starting, then let's we can intervene and stop it because then that leads to this horrible uh, reaction in a human being. To me, that's valuable information. Is it ethically obtained? I, I don't know. But I think there is some value there in, in a weird sense. Oh, well, look, I just I think the whole idea, I mean, you're, you're talking about humankind, human nature, um, you know, the inner workings of the soul, but can we just go right back and say, how much of that can we learn from a laboratory experiment in the basement of a building at Yale University? How much can we generalise from a highly artificial situation mm -hmm. to the world outside? And I think Milgram capitalised on that by connecting to historical events but if you look at the experiment in the cold light of listening to the recordings, interviewing people who took part, 
all you can really comment on is the behaviour in the people of of, the, of those people in that laboratory. Mm-hmm. I really resist the idea that you can generalise to humankind from a single experiment with 40 people because each one of them, remember, was very different. Each experiment had a different script, um, different actors, a different scenario. So are we really saying that we can make generalisations about human nature from the behaviour of 40 people? It's absurd. But that's me being devil's advocate on the other side. Well, it's it's 40 times 23, right? I mean, it's, you know, because there's multiple people in different variations. So it's a little more than 40 people, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, it's 800. Yeah, almost 1,000. Yeah. But the majority of them disobeyed. So why are we still on a conversation about the inherent evil in human nature? I, mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying yeah. about what line... You know, how do you, but can you, can you discover, I guess my question is, can you discover answers to the questions that you've just raised in a laboratory situation as part of a social psychological experiment? Or should you be doing different kinds of research where you, you look at instances where things have occurred and you try and understand them looking back? Well, this should becomes difficult. Like, what should you do? What shouldn't you do? Becomes like a moral or ethical question. But I'm saying, if you're looking, I think that no, I'm talking about methodological, not moral or ethical. Right. That's a different issue. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I think you're right. I think from a method, uh, you say the word. I can't method methodological. 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 <laughs> yes. I think you're right. I think it's impossible to say that this particular experiment. It wasn't run properly. All I'm saying, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate on Milgram saying, I think he's trying to get at a universal truth. That is an interesting universal truth and a valuable one. He definitely didn't go about it the right way. But if we're, you know, we're talking about these variations and I can't let you get away from, from me, Gina, without talking about this secret variation number 24. Let's talk about it. Let's, you know, obviously you, you released it in your book, but a lot of people ha- haven't read your book yet. So let's talk about this, this, uh, this variation because I thought it was really interesting. And in a lot of ways, um, probably the most awkward of the bunch. So let, let's talk about what happened here. Well, Milgram did one variation of the experiment. Um, and, you know, it, it took me ages to work out what this variation was because he never referred to it in his book. Mm-hmm. He only referred to it in his papers as Condition 24. It was the final uh, experiment in the series. And what he did was he advertised for pairs of people who knew one another. So they might have been neighbours, they might have been Mm brother-in-law, they might have been, I think in one instance it was father and son. And what he did was he separated them when they arrived at the lab made one of them the teacher, and then he went into the other room with the learner. So let's say, for example, you and I, you're my Mm brother-in-law. I'm the teacher, and they give me the spiel about how I'm going to do a memory test with you. Then Milgram goes into a room with you, Mm -hmm. and he says to you, okay, I want you to pretend to be in pain every time your sister-in-law presses a switch. And Milgram (laughs) coached them through what cries to do. Uh, Now, look, this is an audio recording, so I don't know whether he stayed in the room with them while they were doing the experiment. I've no idea. Mm -hmm. But 
um, so the experiment begins and you have the teacher beginning the memory test. And remember, the, the experiment begins in a quite benign way. Even though Milgram made much of the machine, the test is quite straightforward. You have to recall pairs of words. It's not difficult. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, so what he has is he has family members or people, you could say, have a connection, if not a love for one another, a friendship. And he runs them through the experiment. Well, you know, there were instances where the teacher practically knocked the experimenter out. You know, there were people shouting. There were people who were highly distressed, who were insisting they couldn't do this to someone else. Right. So my my take on it, oh, sorry. So um, this was the experiment that Milgram did not publish, I think for a, a, a number of reasons. Number, number one, I think, would be that ethically it was completely indefensible. Um, secondly, uh, I think it was the only experimental variation where he got zero compliance. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think he liked that very so, much. <laughs> That's probably a good reason. Well, it, and it raises that whole issue of empathy, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. And it undermines the idea um, that he was intent on promoting about the Holocaust, which was that there were Nazis who, there were people who turned on their neighbours. There were people who turned on people they knew, um, people they worked with, people they interacted with every day. So uh, this variation actually undermined Milgram's research big time. And, uh, yeah, quite apart from the ethics of it, I interviewed uh, two men in um, Bridgeport, Connecticut, mm -hmm who were brothers-in-law who'd been part of this experiment and it was still vivid for, for them mm. 60 years later. In fact, I'd say that about all of the, the people I interviewed. Uh, it was incredible to me. Their recall of the detail was incredible mm -hmm. and, in fact, the things they told me were the things that made me think, I need to go to the archives and double check what actually happened mm -hmm. because what they were telling me was so at odds with uh, what had occurred. Anyway, mm -hmm. so yes, it was the most unethical, but it was also the most damning in terms of Milgram's theory. Well, I think, I mean, again, if you look at it in, you know, in the context of everything else, I mean, there is a lot of value to it, right? I mean, if you know someone, if you have an intimate relationship with them or any kind of relationship, uh, you're not going to shock them to death for sure. Um, and I think that that shows the closer you are, the more the more human empathy, the more connection you have with a person, the less likely you are to do these evil deeds. And I think when you're when you're trying to prove something like, you know, the Holocaust, I mean, one of the things that they were doing was was you know dehumanizing the Jewish population, and uh, they were tr saying that they're the ones responsible for everything. When you've made them the enemy, and you've, you've made any group the enemy, uh, of course, it's going to be much easier because you already feel like they're they've attacked you or they've done something to you, 
and you want retribution. I mean, this isn't this isn't teaching that, but what it is teaching is the spectrum of connection. Whereas the more intimate of a relationship you have with someone, the less likely you are to do this. And the you know a, a complete anonymous connection to someone makes it much easier uh, to do something evil to them. I mean, there's I think there's a movie where uh, you this box arrives at a person's house and you can push the button and get a million dollars. But when you push the button, some random person in the world dies. You kill them. And, and people, you know, whether people push that button or not, I'm sure it was inspired by these experiments. But it's much easier to push a button and, you know, murder an anonymous person than it is to, you know, uh, to push a button and murder someone in your neighborhood. You know, I mean, so I think that that's there's a value to, to, to that, at least, and, and to this experiment. Yeah, well, I'm always going to argue with you trying to make you know, some insights about human nature from Milgram's experiment because it was a flawed theatrical production that was sold as science. But doesn't all doesn't all theater, Gina, doesn't it all get to those fundamental truths, right? I mean, when you watch any play, there are these fundamental pieces of human behavior uh, that exist in there, right? I mean, there's there are fundamental truths. We know it's a play. Sure, we're not borrowing science. Sure, that's it. May not be science, but you know, human nature isn't necessarily science. You can't necessarily prove it. There are these fundamental truths that exist, uh, whether science proves them or not. Um, but you know, one of the things because you you spoke with a lot of people. Uh, I mean, just an incredible amount of research. You went and you traveled, you talked to the pair of people who were experimented on, you talked to the family members or the actual experimenters that they still existed. There was one that was was interesting to me, which is a guy named uh, Herb, uh, W-I-N-E-R. I don't know if it's Weiner, Winner. I'm guessing it's Weiner. Uh, he was one of the subjects. And what's kind of interesting is you talk to him, a couple of things are weird about this story is A, he worked in the forestry department, I think, at Yale. So he was a professor at Yale. Uh, he was ad an admirer of Milgram, had an autographed copy of his book, and yet never forgived him for what he did to him during the experiment. I mean, talk about the, you know, a dichotomy of views here. Uh, this, this, this must have been a very interesting interview. Oh, I mean, I, I had no way really of reconciling his conflicting views and... I think the other thing that is interesting is that Herb is Jewish. There's a significant Jewish population in New Haven and a significant number of Milgram subjects were Jewish. So to be a subject in this experiment where you are reassured, remember people were reassured when the experiment was over that they'd done nothing wrong, mm -hmm. that they shouldn't feel bad about what they'd done. Right. Now, people talk about the ethics of the experiment as if the ethics uh, began and ended in the lab. For me, Milgram's depiction of his subjects in his 1974 book, where he spoke about them as concentration camp guards, was very, very traumatic for people who'd taken part, and particularly for Jewish subjects, mm -hmm. and particularly, I think, I think this was the big problem for Herb was mm -hmm. that he could admire the impulse behind the research. He could admire the individual experimenter, but he could never forgive him for what he put him through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can hold conflicting ideas. We can love and hate someone at the same time. Sure. And I think in maybe, you know, Herb probably wouldn't say love and hate, that's too strong. 
but he was certainly very ambivalent mm -hmm. and still very conflicted. On one hand, he could admire it. On the other, he was still simmering with resentment that he'd been had. Well, yeah, I mean... To say he'd been had it would, would imply that he was upset that he was tricked. And I think his his resentment probably goes a little bit deeper than that. I'm not really sure why he was upset. Like, I mean, because people can be upset for various different reasons, whether they felt like they were exploited or tricked or whatever. Um, but what's interesting in his story is that he had done some electrical work and was familiar. So he knew what 120 volts felt like. So he knew how dangerous 450 was. So he seems like a perfect candidate. And he's a professor, smart guy at Yale. You think he would be a candidate for somebody who would be able to, you know, know that this was not the real thing, like to see through it. You know, I don't know. That, that kind of struck me that he couldn't see through it. Um, but, you know, speaking of the of seeing through it, the thing we have to talk about here, which is what you bring up several times, which is part of the, you know, the unethical nature of this is that Milgram claims to at the end of every experiment that he de-hoaxed which is a weird word, but basically he explained what was going on, told every, you know, told the subject that in no way, no one was, was hurt, that everything was fine. And, you know, to kind of alleviate their psychological stress, that was his goal. And that, you know, he did that ethically. And, and in some ways that kind of excused the behavior and the way the, the, the project and the research was run. Uh, and that, at least that's what he said. And you found something very different. Some people, you know, we're never told, we're told have truths, we're told what they, you know, what he thought they wanted to hear. And some people were never told at all. So they went, they've gone, you know, 60 years thinking that they shocked a guy to death <laughs> in a room, which is just wild to me. I mean, he really had no qualms lying to everyone who left the experiment. Yeah, look, in some ways you could say the experiment itself was uh an adventure in cruelty mm -hmm. because he told most people at the end that, that most of them, a lot of them met the learner. The learner came out from the room next door mm -hmm. and shook their hand uh, and said, you know, I overreacted or sometimes they were told that the experiment was actually, the machine would had been developed for use on small animals and not on humans. They were given all these half-truths. <laughs> so there was no way of processing what had just happened. There was no truthful reconciliation or understanding. And for me, you know, and this really goes to the heart of it, doesn't it? Because if an experiment, if as a subject you volunteer your time for a fee to take part in an experiment, mm -hmm. the minimum you should expect, I think, is to gain some information about yourself mm -hmm. or about the world as a result of your participation. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, Milgram did not offer people that opportunity, despite the fact he, he was very slippery with his terminology. He called it de-hoax. Yeah which is an interesting word to use because it's not the same as a debrief. Right. Um, so they were told that the man was not as in as much pain or that the machine wasn't as powerful as they thought, but they were never told that the experiment was a setup because Milgram right. didn't want word to get out in the local community mm -hmm. because he was dependent on the town of New Haven for fresh subjects. <laughs> and if word got out that this was a setup, yeah. 
he would not have what he would call naive subjects. So, you know, there was a lot invested for him in not telling people the real story. And as you say, um, a lot of them never really found out. I mean, he sent them a written report about a year after the experiment was over. But I interviewed one man who still wanted to know what had happened. He, he really had no idea of uh, what had gone on in that room or why it had happened the way it had. I mean, that is crazy. I mean, you do kind of paint a, paint a picture of a, like a Dr. Victor Frankenstein <laughs> with fresh subjects in, the, in the, the local town as he's sitting in his castle, which is kind of true. Uh, one of the things, there were a couple of, of weird things as we close here. Um, I believe, I'm looking at my notes, I can't quite find uh, exactly what I'm looking for, but you'll, you'll know it when I tell you this. But I believe he did, he was looking for men at first, but did do a variation with women. And I think two women died, uh, to, like either close by or had some kind of psychological trauma before, or someone in their family died before they went into this experiment. Uh, and then two of the learners, um, because he obviously cast, you know, a person as the, t as the experimenter and the person as the learner, but both people who played the learner who were, cl who were claiming, you know, heart trouble died of like a heart attack two or three years, both of them, two or three years after the, you know, the events of the experiment. So uh, tell me. Fascinating. Because um, the, the man, the original man who played the learner, um, McDonough, Jim McDonough, um, was, I, I met his son and wow. his son told me that his father had actually been having treatment for a heart problem at the hospital in New Haven. And that wow. was part of the script. <laughs> And I wondered whether or not Milgram you drew from real life yeah. to incorporate that into the script to make it more of a dramatic situation. But yes, um, tragically, Jim McDonough died um, soon after the experiments were over from a heart attack. So the man who played the learner complaining of heart problem yeah. died from a heart problem. And... His son, Bob, who's a wonderful uh, man who I really enjoy uh, his humour and insights, mm -hmm. never met his father because he was – well, he has no memory of his father because he's only a baby wow. when his father died. And then in, in 1974, when Milgram's book came out, the family were watching TV and Milgram was on 60 Minutes and they showed a clip of the experiment. And the family recognised their father. Wow. And that they said, what's dad doing on TV? Because their father was the learner in the experiment. Anyway, um, they rang 60 Minutes. They spoke to the producer who finally got them onto Milgram, who sent them a copy of the film. And one of the amazing things um, that Bob told me was that the first time he ever saw his father was on a bed sheet pinned up to the lounge room wall wow. with the film projector going and he saw his father playing the role of the learner complaining of heart problems. That's crazy. And it was the first time he heard him speak, the first time he saw him move. So there were these incredible stories within the experiment itself. And, yes, the women, there was one condition um, where there was a group of women mm -hmm. and what we haven't talked about but I think um, – really stood out for me in the uh, variation with women is 
Milgram always um, presented the experiment as highly controlled with a standardised script um, that it, what he said was people had um, three opportunities. If they complained more than three times and said that they wanted to stop the experiment, that they didn't want to give any more shocks to the learner, then the experiment would be terminated. But when I listened to the variation with the women, there were women who were saying that they didn't want to go on time after time after time. And the experimenter refused to let them discontinue. So it became really clear to me listening to those tapes that this was a, an argument between the teacher and the experimenter where the experimenter had the control. One woman actually got up and unplugged the machine wow. and said she refused to continue. Um, and another person, I think it was over 30 times wow. that the experimenter said that she had to continue. And yet the, the, classic depiction of the experiment is that there were four standard prods. Mm -hmm. The first one was you must go on teacher right through to the fourth one, which was you have no other choice teacher. You must continue. Mm -hmm. Now Milgram said there were those four prods. If someone continued after that to say they wanted to pull out, then they were pulled out. They were deemed as disobedient and the experiment was over. Mm -hmm. When I listened to the women's tapes, I could hear this, bullying happening from the experimenter and I, I was suddenly realized actually they've moved the goalposts mm -hmm. it's no longer that you say four times I don't want to continue and I'm deemed disobedient it's inf it seemed infinite mm -hmm. um, yeah so there were women afterwards who were absolutely enraged by their treatment during the experiment and like a lot of the men, I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's safe to say this was a time in history where things weren't exactly equal, and I don't know that women were treated as equally as others. I think that's safe to say, uh, and that obviously that chauvinistic attitude definitely bled over into the experiments. And, you know, uh, he, I, think he, I think he saw a group of people he felt like he could control and wanted, them to, wanted to manipulate them, and didn't quite work. Yes, Yes, but also if you want to make an argument about the universality of your findings, mm -hmm. that it's applicable to human nature, sure. then getting women to comply at equal rates to men is a powerful argument for right. that. So my yeah. reading of that was that the experimenter was intent on getting to a 60% obedience rate with the groups of mm -hmm. women so that Milgram could argue that whatever, whoever you tested, this was uh, a constant, a trait that was applicable, whether you were male or female at that time. Right. And just keep badgering them until it works. Get, get your, get your obedience <laughs> subjects at, at all costs, is what I think was the, uh, was the mantra. Uh, well, this is, you know, we've, I mean, literally scratched the surface of this. I mean, you've done, uh, this book is just incredibly researched. If you want to know the ins and outs of this experiment, the behind the scenes, I mean, this is just an incredible book, uh, evergreen as they get. So how can people find it and how can people find you uh, if they want to get a hold of this book? Um, well, the book's available on Amazon. I should say that there are two versions of the book. There's an American version, which has a yellow cover, mm -hmm. and there's an Australian version, which includes a chapter on a, um, 
a replication of the Milgram experiment at my old university here in Melbourne, mm. where I interviewed people who took part in that as well. That doesn't feature in the American version, so just to let what? you know. There's two different kinds. You can find them on Amazon. Well, hold on a second. So this this is a little bit of country of countryism here, nationalism. Uh, so in Australia, you give people an exclusive extra chapter. America, we don't get that chapter. Here's the important question. I think I think the idea was that Americans would be less interested in what happened in Australia than the other way. Uh, that might be true. Well, let me ask you this: Did I get the Did I get the Australian version or the American version? I don't know what color was the cover. It's a digital copy. I don't know. Uh, but uh, no digital copy. I don't know. Was there a copy? Was there a chapter on La Trobe University? Uh, I don't think so. I think you. I think you stuck oh, well, me you with go. the American you probably version. Got the American one. I'm not a typical American. I wanted that chapter. Uh, but if people want to find <laughs> either one, it's on Amazon. And what about your social media? What if people want to talk about this and, and demand that you send me an individual copy with that particular chapter in it? I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, and my website is gina-perry.com. And what's the Twitter, what's the handle on Twitter? At Gina Perry. And Facebook? Same. Okay. <laughs> I'll make sure we have all of that up. And of course, if you want to follow the show, uh, we're on Twitter at Fascinating Noun or on Facebook at Fascinating Nouns. And if you're listening to the audio version of this, which of course we're on every podcasting platform, but you want to see the video version, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn and all of this stuff, including my links, Gina's links will be on fascinatingnouns.com. That's where you get it. So Gina, just another fascinating conversation uh, about a well-researched book. And of course, people should go back and listen to our Robber's Cave experiments, which we did previously. Uh, great work, a great book. And, and thanks so much again for, for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. It was a delight. Lovely to talk to you. Pleasure's all mine, Gina. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel G. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. and We even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.